Yes, Chairman. we've got some cool stuff. You can see uh, my sophomore effort covered behind me. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach at the Naval Institute. With me is my usual partner for the podcast, Bill Hamlet, the Deputy Editor of Proceedings Magazine. Bill, how are you today? Hey, Ward. Great to be here. It's a beautiful day in uh, around Beach Hall in the Naval Academy Yard. Nice Gorgeous. fall weather. It's 70-something and clear and a million and Looks like it's going to be nice for the next couple of days. This is my favorite time of the year. Me too. Football yeah. season, nice weather. Finally, the humidity's uh, out of the air. It's great. Yeah, so football season. Um, Navy didn't look so good last weekend. Um, hope, we're hoping for a, uh, a better result uh, coming up this weekend. Although, uh, UCF is uh, supposed to be pretty amazing. So, uh, um, we'll see how it goes. Um a lot of headwork errors and other things, unforced errors last week. It just didn't look like the same team that was 5-0 and going into that team. So uh, we hope for the best. Um, th- wanted to uh, go over a little bit of history. I was thinking as I uh, was ambling about Beach Hall about uh, the origins, and I was talking to somebody um, about the Naval Institute, and, and, and people forget uh, that uh, how, how this place started. And I'm not sure we've talked about it on the podcast before, but – Back in 1873, uh, Rear Admiral John L. Warden, who was Naval Institute member number one, was superintendent of the Naval Academy. And uh, during the Civil War, he had been skipper of the Monitor, uh, the the famous uh, ironclad. And so you can imagine in the Civil War, that's kind of like stealth. That was like being a... Oh, it's like being the CEO of the Zumwalt in, yes, in 2017. Exactly. Yeah. So that's pretty high-speed tech, and, and he used it to good effect. Uh, in, in the, although the famous battle against the Virginia was kind of a draw, it, was, it prevailed in other campaigns over the course of the war. So Emma Warden was pretty bullish on, on the lessons learned during the Civil War. So fast forward seven years... He's the superintendent of the Naval Academy here on the yard. Um, and the yard back then, it's not a surprise to, to imagine that it looked not a whole lot like what the yard looks like today. Much of today's yard is recaptured land. So basically the footprint was where Bancroft Hall starts was the water's edge. Now Bancroft Hall wasn't even there in 1873. So um, there were four buildings. One of them was the chemistry and physics building. So Admiral Warden was very concerned about the direction of the U.S. Navy uh, circa 1873. The drums of war were beating against the Spanish. I think we had seven craft that were seaworthy and they were all, you know, the the old sail versus steam discussion was reintroduced. So here's a guy that, that really won the war with high-speed technology and he sees we're going backwards. The public has no interest in recapitalizing the Navy. Con- Congress has cut back the budget. Yep. As, as the as oldest Congress story always ever does told. after a war in the United States. Right? Exactly. Yep. So he assembles 14 other like-minded individuals, 15 folks. So it includes his exo from the days of Monitor, includes one academic, a civilian, and a Marine. So that original 15 got together and formed the Naval Institute here on the academy grounds. And right from the get-go, they dealt with existential problems. They weren't telling sea stories about the Civil War or you know, just planning their next outing into town. They were talking about real issues, and they took notes. Those notes were called the Proceedings of the Naval Institute. 
The first issue came out in 1874. Um, as, as a quarterly, they started a, started publishing. So, so some of those uh, members started presenting papers yep. uh, at their monthly or, or quarterly meetings. They presented papers, and those papers uh, and the notes became the proceedings of the Naval Institute. They published the first issue in 1874. It dealing was, with real stuff. Yeah, and there was an right, article dealing, in the first one. Dealing with the future of the Navy. Written by Stephen B. Luce. Um, of, who was Naval Institute Hall of Fame today, but uh, he was Naval Institute member number four. So Warden was number one. And if you've never seen a picture of Admiral Warden, I, I very much uh, invite you to Google him uh, and look at images of, the, of, of him. He's a pretty amazing looking guy, and he's rocking this very cool beard. He looks like he should be in ZZ Top. He, he'd be a hipster's dream. Um, and... Uh, but Stephen B. Lewis is number four. He wrote an article about the need for an advanced institution of military learning, which became the legislation or basically enacted the legislation, legislation that became the Naval War College, of which Stephen B. Lewis was the first president. So, you know, if you're wondering why are the names on the buildings and what the heck is this all about? You know, the heritage of the Naval Institute is rich, to put it mildly. Um, and the thing that I, I wanted to emphasize and that I've reminded myself of uh, in the last number of months is it's always been of great consequence, the issues we deal with here that you deal with acutely and intimately in the pages of proceedings each month. But at our events, when we talked last show about the amazing event we had a couple of weeks ago here on the yard uh, with uh, Admiral Mullen and Admiral Roughhead and General Powell and Bob Woodward talking about the politics and military, amazing stuff, signature Naval Institute stuff. So I just was reminded myself, you know, first thing in the morning, I usually wake up with a song in my head, you know, random, very random song. Um, which kind of sets the tone for the day. But this morning I was thinking about Admiral Warden. So you, and had, we're you had a picture of Admiral Warden with his beard that woke yes, up this morning. Yes, it woke yeah. me up. It was it was yeah. uh, a, a vision. You know, uh, he's a fascinating-looking guy, and, and his his uh, pedigree and his history is uh, is amazing. In fact, we're we're creating T-shirts that I think we're going to debut at West. Um, so if you're going to West in February out in San Diego, look forward to these things and. We'll fire him into the crowd using a T-shirt gun. But it'll be Admiral Warden on the front, and then victory begins at the Naval Institute, which we're sort of socializing as our new tagline on the back. So that's a rocking T-shirt, you know, 100% cotton, right? And Be one of thick. the first hundred. Right? Yeah, be one of the first hundred. Um, and uh, so anyway. Well, another thing I'd just like to throw in on the history of the Naval Institute uh, is that uh, you know, when I was a, a junior officer, especially when I was a midshipman, a few times I saw proceedings when I was a midshipman, you know, you sort of had this perception that uh, uh, proceedings was for admirals to write about, you know, write in. And, uh, you know, you think about, um, you, you know, this, well, I'm not good enough to write in it, you know, as a lieutenant or as a midshipman. Um, but I love looking back at the history and, and finding things like, you know, Chester Nimitz wrote in proceedings. Uh, not only as an admiral, but he wrote, started writing for proceedings when he was Lieutenant Chester Nimitz in around 1912. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ernest King, fleet admiral, wrote later on in his career, but he won the General Prize Essay Contest in 1909 as Lieutenant 
Chester or Lieutenant Ernie, Ernie King, King, yeah, right. Uh, you know, Commander Alfred Thayer Mahan wrote for proceedings a number of times. So you walk around the Naval Academy, or you walk around any naval base, and you you know you see these big names that are legends, right? Luce and and Mahan and Nimitz and King. They all wrote in proceedings, and not just when they were flags or later in their career, but they wrote when they were JOs, which I think, you know, portended some of their later success, right? Because they were big thinkers uh, who were getting ahead of where does the Navy need to go? And a lot of what they wrote was not in, a, you know, in definite agreement or 100% agreement with what the Navy policy of the day was. A lot of what they wrote questioned, hey, is that really the technology we need? Uh, or maybe we aren't as far ahead as we need to be, and this would get us there. That's clearly what John Warden was doing when he looked at the Navy after the Civil War going back to the days of you know, wooden ships and iron men and sailing ships, rather than embracing the ironclads, rather than embracing steam power and, and turreted guns. Uh, you know, Chester Nimitz looked at uh, the, the state of diesel engines in the German Navy, and he brought that to the United States because we were behind the Germans before World War I. So, all the major technological, the strategy, the leadership, the tactics changes that have happened to the Navy in, in the last 144 years have all been in proceedings, many of them, you know, up to a decade or more before they actually happened in the Navy. And yeah. that's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, you can add uh, Teddy Dewey. Roosevelt. Dewey was what I was Dewey, looking for. I think that's Dewey what you meant to say. At, at Manila right? Bay, right. Yes. Dewey yes. has been published in proceedings. Right. Lejeune. Yes. Um you know, and then on into Winnefeld and Stavridis and, and every month, John, uh, Allen. John Allen, General yeah. Allen is, uh, is very active uh, even today in the, in the pages. Uh, you know, so a source of great pride for us and, and uh, just wanted to remind the listeners of, of some of that. Now, um, in terms of what's happening today in the pages uh, and online in the various properties of USNI, uh, our good friend John Grady, who reports for USNI News, a couple of days ago had an article uh, called Pentagon Facing Future Recruiting Challenges Due to Lack of Candidates. And it's a pretty dire situation. Um, basically, what he says is, uh, I'll read you the first paragraph. All the military services face increased recruiting challenges because more than 70% of America's youth do not meet Pentagon standards for enlistment. A member of the House Armed Services committee said Thursday. And so Representative Don Bacon said, quote, the single most important ingredient to readiness is the constant flow of willing volunteers, uh, end quote. And then the article goes on to say, but with 71% of the population between 17 and 24 unable to meet the fitness, weight, and moral standards requirement, uh, Bacon continued, quote, it's a red flag for our country, end quote. So this is a pretty concerning situation, right? I mean, uh, what what's this about and, and, and how are we going to fix it, do you think? Yeah, it's, a, it's a huge concern. And I was surprised to see that number 71% because I think the last time, I, I remember this uh, topic being written about maybe 15, 20 years ago, and the number was around half. Uh, so half of America's youth, 18, you know, 17 to 24 uh, enlistment age, recruitment age, or even draft age if we were in a, in a protracted war and we had to bring back the draft, are either obese, uh, or they've got uh, some other you know physical ailment, uh, or they've got criminal records, or they've got a substance abuse problem, or can't fail you know can't pass a um, uh, a urinalysis test, 
so when you can only draw uh, from 29% of the young population to fill your military, you know, that's a significant problem. And it, it compounds with the problem that is, has been written about in proceedings off and on for the last 30 years about the civil-military divide, about the fact that you know, Congress 50 years ago, um, it's like 80% of people in Congress 50 years ago had served in the military. That percentage is way down now. Uh, so when, when uh, senior decision makers are making a decision about whether to use the military or not, uh, it helps when they have skin in the game. Either they've had their own skin in the game, uh, or their children are serving in the military, or they've got you know people in their family close to them, close friends who have who've got you know people in the military. That gives pause to you know the decision to use whether to use or not the military, whether to commit it to war. But when you know the senior uh, decision makers, political decision makers in the United States, uh, you know. Are divorced from the military, or haven't served, or don't have, don't know anybody who's served, and and that's now a very high percentage of uh, of American politicians don't know anyone who served in the military. Uh, that's that's a real concern. So we're drawing from a small percentage who can actually serve, uh, and then the decision makers are uh, distant from those who serve, and so you have this uh, tool that. Um, uh, you know, if you're depending on a, a steady stream of uh, of good, you know, quality young people to serve in the military, um, you know, it's a real concern. It's a it's a it's a definite uh, wake up call. So here's a question, and I mean this in the most apolitical way possible, which is tough these days. Um, is the civilian military divide growing or shrinking uh, under a Donald Trump presidency? What's your assessment in the last nine or ten months? Well, that's uh, you know that's a good question. I, I'm not I'm not really sure how to answer that for the last nine or ten months because you look at um, you know the the decision makers that he's put in places like White House Chief of Staff uh, General Kelly, former military uh, Secretary of the, of the Defense right now uh, General Mattis, uh, you know, served military and, and is considered a hero people by people inside and outside the military. Um, you know, the National Security Advisor uh, H.R. McMaster's serving current three-star you know Army officer. Uh, so I, I think that would portend that divide you know shrinking a bit. I would also point to uh, what I've seen, and this is just. Um, uh, you know, an, uh, anecdotal evidence, right? But I've seen a lot about um, people who are uh, military veterans of OEF and OIF who've retired or gotten out of the military who are now running for Congress. Uh, Amy, Gre Amy McGrath, Lieutenant Colonel Amy McGrath, who was on our editorial board until uh, just a few months ago, she retired. She was just on one of the panels yeah, at our, she was at on our a, history conference. Right. So she, Amy uh, retired from the Marine Corps. She, sur she flew uh, F-18s uh, as a, both as an NFO and as a pilot. Um, retired from the Marine Corps as lieutenant colonel. Uh, has moved back to Kentucky and is running for Congress uh, as a Democrat in Kentucky. Um, and I've seen other things about, um, you know, recent, uh, you know, people who are younger than, than we are who have retired or gotten out of the military um, after their OEF, OIF service and have decided to run for office. So I think that that trend is maybe bouncing back in the other direction. Maybe the, um, the low point was hit, you know, five, six years ago, ten years ago of the number of people in Congress who had or had not served in the military. 
Uh, but that's anecdotal right now. I haven't seen an actual survey to say that, you know, this, that the statistic is, uh, is rising again. But another one, we heard uh, Ryan Zinke last year at the Defense Forum Washington that the Naval Institute uh, put on um, down, downtown Washington. Uh, Zinke was a Navy SEAL. He ran and was elected uh, as a congressman from Wyoming. And, uh, and now he's the Secretary of the Interior under President Trump. So, um, I, you know, again, somebody who served, served in Iraq and Afghanistan, served in Congress, and is now a member of the cabinet. So, um, the, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about uh, um, the, uh, um, I'm, I'm playing what I meant to say, uh, Congress service. Oh yeah, I know what I was going to say. Uh, so, uh, yesterday in the Rose Garden, the there was uh, at least the media made a big deal about uh, President Trump's comments uh, about how President Obama and other presidents didn't contact the families. Um, so I, I don't want to discuss that so much. Um, but what has also come out of that is people that are going, okay, so these Green Beret died in. Uh, Niger um, what are we doing in Niger and how come the American public doesn't know we're there Uh, so a couple of things come to mind Um, you know these Green Beret died several weeks ago they they were killed uh, several weeks ago in an ambush and nobody asked at that time what are we doing in Niger and only when President Trump sort of um, you know makes a a, a, a regrettable statement or tries to justify his own standing uh, in a uniquely President Trumpian way, do people start to ask, why are we in Niger? So I think there's a little bit of disingenuousness about that question. But, you know, I mean, let's be honest. We're all over the world with special operations units in places like Central America, in South America, along the Amazon, uh with the war on drugs in places that people don't even know about. And that's, you know, the public isn't going to know everything uh, with respect to small unit tactics or special operations. So I think that's a little bit of an, you know, if suddenly the nation or the intelligentsia um, are kind of like, hey, how come I didn't know? Um, I I don't think that's uh, fair to the administration fully or the the Pentagon for that matter. You're not going to know everything. Um, but I also don't think that that deployment, you know, aspects of that deployment were probably secret, probably held closely, at least until uh, it was happening. Uh, but it's been it's certainly been public knowledge, whether people pay attention to it or not is another thing. But it's been public knowledge uh, that since 9-11, uh, the U.S., especially special forces, um, but a lot of U.S. military forces have been deployed around the world doing partner engagement and building what we call building partner capacity. Uh, So countries that have been trying to uh, deal with and eliminate uh, pockets of Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations, um, you know, have had uh, a strong partnership from the U.S. military uh, for for a long time now, not, you know, not just since 9-11, but it was certainly energized after 9-11. So we had uh, and I, we still do have some presence in, in the, uh, the southern Philippines, helping um, uh, the Philippine government route out uh, Abu Sayyaf group uh, and others that are have, have been associated with al-Qaeda uh, in West Africa. 
um, the the, the uh, special forces that were in in Niger uh, were there on the same kind of a mission. It's um, it's uh, help building building partner capacity because in a lot of these places, uh, you either have poor governance, poor central government, uh, or poorly trained and equipped military forces, and so you've got sort of this power vacuum. Places like Somalia, uh, places like um, you know certain areas of West Africa. Uh, where the, the government has not been powerful enough to, you know, to completely control all of its territory. And so in, in vacuums like that, al-Qaeda loves to go in and set up. Well, and al-Shabaab. Right? Al-Shabaab is, yeah. is the uh, al-Qaeda West Africa, or I'm sorry, the um, uh, ISIL West Africa affiliate, right? So right. That was, uh, that's, the, that's the group in West Africa. Uh, they pledged allegiance about two, two and a half years ago to, uh, to ISIL. Um, so in small units, uh, U.S. Army, Green Berets, Special Forces, uh, Navy SEALs have gone to the places like that uh, to provide training and assistance uh, and also to sometimes to do um, patrols out with the host nation forces uh, to find and engage and, uh, and eliminate uh, uh, those forces. Oftentimes it's not uh, supposed to be frontline, but when you're doing you know, exercises out in uh, remote areas of country, sometimes you bump into people. I worked at the Navy SEAL team back in uh, the, the 1990s. Uh, our area of focus was uh, South America, Latin America. Uh, and we had guys who went down and did uh, riverine training operations with the Colombian um, Marines, Colombian military. Uh, and when they were out doing, you know, occasionally when they were out doing uh, training operations on rivers in, in Colombia, you know, they came across the FARC and they ended up in firefights with the FARC. It wasn't intentional. Um, but you know, when you're there training, you know the uh, the host nation forces, uh, you don't always control you know everything about that's you know what's going to happen around you. So, um, yeah, I, I I agree that uh, you know sometimes these small unit tactics, small unit operations in in particularly third world countries, they don't get a lot of attention. The decision is made uh, as part of a grander strategy. What are we going to do about ISIL in in Africa? Uh, well, we're going to do some, you know, some uh, train and assist missions uh, with countries there, with Niger, um, and and that has repercussions, right? But if you don't do it, you know, then the problem of ISIL in West Africa, you know, grows and it it metastasizes to the point where you're, you know, sending a much bigger unit three or four years from now. So, uh, what's well, yeah, the yeah. lesson of Al Qaeda pre 9/11 in Afghanistan? Right. Right. I mean, you know, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I mean the pass down uh, from from uh, uh, Clinton to Bush was, hey, this is a big deal. Um, it's number one on our prior list, and then by by all accounts, uh, uh, the national security apparatus under Bush forty three sort of, I don't want to say they poo pooed it, but it just wasn't uh, on the top of their their agenda. Um, so, you know, it's the oldest lesson ever relearned, um, and so. To your point, what we're doing is trying not to repeat the lesson of 9-11 by allowing al-Shabaab and other fledgling terrorist groups to, as you put it, metastasize in regions that are uh, not very nice places of the world. So, you know, this is what special forces and special operations is all about. They don't go to garden spots. They go to places that are hard to get to, remote, um, and demand uh, small unit tactics in order to work there effectively. So same as it's ever been. You know, they fight the war between the wars. Um, and, uh, you know, that that that's uh, that it comes to the attention of um, 
again, the intelligentsia uh, and becomes an issue is, is not the Pentagon's problem, quite frankly. You know, thank you for paying attention episodically to what's going on in the military. But, uh, you know, pardon us if we're just doing our job and not trying to keep you informed moment to moment. Now, none of that is to say that the American public should be kept in the dark about how their tax dollars are being used or what is being done to protect the homeland. That's not the point. Um, but like you said, some of this is people just weren't paying attention. You know, oh, it's ab- all knowable. Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, so I worked one of my last tours in the Navy. I worked at the National Counterterrorism Center, and I worked in the Strategy and Policy Directorate, uh, helping to develop the, the national terror, the national uh, strategy uh, to deal with ISIL after uh, they invaded Mosul in Iraq uh, from Syria in 2014, uh, and that strategy. Uh, while the actual strategy was classified and never made, see, made never made public, the Obama administration uh, did release a, uh, a a very detailed press release about the elements of that strategy. We shared that with our allies. Uh, one of the key elements was to build partner capacity because there was a recognition that while ISIL at that time was a huge problem in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, sorry, Iraq and Syria. Um, and we needed to uh, deal with the main part of ISIL in, in that area of the world. Uh, we also recognized that other uh, organizations would want to affiliate and did affiliate with ISIL very quickly, like al-Shabaab in West Africa, uh, pledged allegiance to ISIL because they saw this as the growing caliphate. The al-Qaeda was sort of the, the old game, uh, and ISIL was the new. Um, and so... We had build partner capacity uh, operations going on in Iraq to build up uh, the Iraqi security forces' ability to push back against ISIL and push them back to the north and out of, uh, out of eventually out of Mosul and out of Iraq as they've done. Uh, and at the same time, we had build partner capacity operations in places like Kenya and in Somalia and in West Africa uh, and in um, uh, you know Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, that you know, because w- there was a recognition that the U.S. cannot fight and win this on our own. It, it will all be by, with, and through partners, and that 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 was not a secret part of the strategy, right? Building partner capacity, as you said, has been something that, especially special forces, have been doing, uh, you know, since they were, um, you know, since since created. This, since I they, mean, were created, they were created, right? I was do. just I was just thinking about President Kennedy, uh, you yeah. know, starting the seals back. Uh, you know, before before the Vietnam War. Right, right, exactly, for that very utility. Um, so I see you got an article, uh, the Proceedings Magazine opened to a particular article there. Um, so we've talked about China in previous shows. Um, what's, what's that story all about right there? So this one we talked about a few weeks ago, and I, I wanted to bring it up again uh, because we just posted it today on Facebook and on uh, Twitter. Uh, this is by Captain Jim Fennell, former Pack Fleet and Seven Fleet N2 and uh, China Hand. Uh, uh, it's his piece talking about the decade of concern uh, and how the clock is ticking, ticking with China. Um, the uh, you know this is Jim bringing to our attention uh, as Jim is quite good at doing. Sometimes bringing up uh, facts that that people don't want to hear about China but need to hear. Um, so in uh, earlier this summer, uh, President Xi Jinping um, 
gave a speech at which he recognized and basically declared that the PLA now has the confidence and capability to defeat all invading enemies and safeguard China's national sovereignty, security, and developmental interests. Um, and, and Jim points out uh, there's a nice timeline in this piece that shows that uh, the, P, the, the People's Republic of China created in 1949. Uh, we're coming up now in uh, about 30 years. We're coming up on the uh, 100th anniversary. Uh, the Chinese for uh, f you know, quite some time now have laid out uh, some goals of the, um, of the Chinese Communist Party that they would like to accomplish before that 100th anniversary. Uh, and one of them is to reunite all Chinese territory, uh, and that includes the South China Sea, it includes Taiwan, includes the Senkakus. Um, and so Jim is, is pointing out that this is the first time that the, that the Supreme Leader, that the Chinese president has said publicly that we have the confidence that the PLA is now capable of doing all these things, of reuniting uh, all Chinese territory, solving all of their territorial problems um, if, that, if they need to take a military action. So uh, Jim also points out that if you're going to you know, reunite China, all of their Chinese territory by 2049, that we're kind of coming into now the decade between 2020 and 2030 where that might be the time period where the Chinese leadership decides to take action. Uh, so it's an interesting piece. It's provocative. Uh, Jim Fennell, good friend of mine, uh, has always been provocative. Uh, he often, uh, you know, says things that people do not want to hear about China. Um, but I haven't found uh, yet one of the one of his things, um, you know, to be uh, unfounded. Uh, so I recommend it for you. And uh, as I said, we posted it today on Facebook. It's now out from behind the member paywall. Uh, we'll leave it out for a week or two. Uh, I shared it with Real Clear Defense and with Chinfo Clips. So hopefully, they pick it up in the next day or two. Uh, so, if you if you have a chance to take a look at Jim Fennell's piece, I recommend it to you. Fantastic. Uh, we also want to give equal time to uh, our good friend Richard Latour and Naval History Magazine. Um, in the uh, towards the back of the current issue, um, which uh, has a, um, a dive bomber and a decision at Leyte Gulf on the cover. Nice painting, but you know, it's baseball, or towards the end of baseball season, the playoffs are happening. A super cool item in the back uh, of this issue of, of Naval History Magazine. Um, and I did not realize this, but because the draft was, was included everybody in World War II, uh, they had actually 36 Hall of Famers who served, baseball Hall of Famers who served in, uh, in World War II. And... Uh, Every once in a while, they'd break away in Hawaii and have uh, what they called the Servicemen's World Series, and it turned out to be sort of an Army-Navy game. Um, but check out some of these names here. So on the Army side was Joe DiMaggio and Hank Greenberg, um, and on the uh, Navy side was Phil Rizzuto of the Yankees, Johnny Mize from the Cardinals, Virgil Trucks from the Tigers, and Pee Wee Reese from the Dodgers. You know, it's just this is... You know, when you think about it, it's just unbelievable. And there's a gorgeous picture uh, that's signed by all the participants, which is from the Naval Institute Archive. So I'll hold it up to the Facebook camera so uh, you guys can see it however well you can see it there. Um, but this is what I love about Naval History Magazine. They just capture 
you know, the, the history has such texture um, at the hands of, of Richard and his team. And, and uh, again, because of what's going on with the, the Major League Baseball, uh, you know, heading toward the World Series and all the amazing games that's going on. And our CEO, Pete Daly, is a huge Cubs fan. Um, so, you know, they're, they're having uh, their hands full with the Dodgers. I guess it's, it's two, the series right now is two and oh, two and oh, yeah, two, not, in, not in favor, not in, Daly's not, favor, not in right? favor of the Cubbies, which is not good for us. No, on staff. morale is, uh, is low in Beach <laughs> Hall. So, uh, come on Cubbies rally. I don't have a dog in that fight. Really. Um, I'm a Cardinals man. Although I, I, I will say that last year when the Cubs won the world series, it was really pleasant. To no, be I don't, um, for, I know. don't doubt it. I'm it, sure it was. <laughs> But that was just that's just a cool item here in, in that in that issue of uh, uh, the current issue of naval history, so uh, good work to uh, to that team. What else is going on? Well, that's should a long just, pause. Should I should we just, just end the yeah, show. You know what? You know what's, uh, the the pause is because we are right now at uh, it's deadline uh, we, time. It's deadline time for yeah. the November issue of proceedings. So, so can you give everybody a taste of it, what they're going to uh, see in the super issue? Busy. Yeah, so the November issue, uh, which will go to the printers tomorrow, uh, we'll do Blue Line, our, our final edits tomorrow morning. That's business speak. That's business Blue speak Line. for the publishing industry. Yeah. I, did, I didn't know what Blue Lines were you know, 15 months ago before I came to work here, and, and now it's uh, something we, we celebrate every week, every month when we get to Blue Lines. Uh, but uh, November is the Marine Corps focus. Uh, we've got some uh, great articles by Marines uh, about Marines, about amphibious warfare, about logistics in an, you know, a high-end fight. Uh, how do you, you know, how do you get the Marines there uh, in the South China Sea or in a in a scenario like that against a peer or near-peer competitor in the future? Uh, we've got the um, the winners of the Naval Intelligence Essay Contest uh, and the Cyber Essay Contest, uh, both current serving members of the the profession. Um, some great stuff on leadership. Uh, a good friend of mine, former boss, um, Admiral uh, Paul Becker, who served as the Joint Staff J-2, also was the ISAF J-2 in Afghanistan. Uh, he wrote about his, uh, his hallmark uh, on leadership, which is teamwork, tone, and tenacity, uh, which I never worked for, for uh, Admiral Becker until I was a captain, and he came in as the J-2 out at PACOM. Uh, and introduced us all to this teamwork, tone, and tenacity. I initially thought it was a bumper sticker and sort of, you know, uh, logoistic. Um, as too often those kind of things are. As often they are, right? Yeah. But uh, in, in Admiral Becker's case, absolutely not. He, uh, he lived it. He, uh, he let us know uh, when we met his standards, uh, and he also let us know when, when we didn't meet his standards. And so you knew ex he was a wonderful boss because you knew exactly what he expected. You knew what his standards were. His standards were consistent, uh, and he enforced them. He also praised you for, for meeting the standards, uh, and he, he lived that. And he, he, you know, his piece is not about him. It's really about people like General McChrystal and General Dempsey, who he worked for. Uh, um, a couple of Navy admirals that he worked for, uh, you know, people like Henry Fonda and John Wayne in in uh, military movies that in, you know exuded the the idea of teamwork, of tenacity, uh, and getting the mission done. So it's a great piece on leadership. It's a quick read, two pages in the magazine, uh, and I recommend that to you when uh, when you get the November issue of uh, Proceedings. Well, so you talk about the Marine Corps theme, and people, when you talk about Marine Corps, people tend to think of the Marine Corps Gazette. Um, and uh, 
my good friend General Faulkner, who's the head of the Marine Corps Association that publishes Marine Corps Gazette, he and I went to actually high school together. Um, and I'm not taking anything away from the Marine Corps Gazette. It's a fantastic vessel that's, you know, I was raised by a Marine. It was around our house growing up. Um, and it, it, it has its place. But what I do want to say is the Naval Institute and proceedings have always uh, been a forum for Marine Corps strategic thought and tactical thought. And one of the value propositions of being a member of the Naval Institute is you get full access to the USNI.org proceedings archives, and you can go way back uh, to 1874 and look up the earliest thoughts of the leadership at the time. But a few months ago, I had the gift of being able to address the current Expeditionary Warfare School class at Quantico and talk to them about our sponsored student program. Um, and in preps for that, I tailored my comments about Marine Corps uh, specific content that had been in proceedings over the years. It's amazing, amazing. Um, some of the stuff and who's written, as we mentioned before, General Lejeune was very active in proceedings throughout his uh, the later part of his career, for sure. Other future combatants like Cushman and Krulak in their f field grade years were very active in contributing to proceedings. But the one thing that jumped out at me as just amazing in terms of its impact on tactical thought was an article by Major H.H. H. Utley that came out in 1931 talking about the state of amphibious warfare. And he basically set a signal in the air that we got to get our act together. And he had pictures of the current boats they used. They were absolute boats. You didn't go out the front of them. You jumped over the side like a lifeboat, um, like one of those big lifeboats, you know. Um, and the equipment and tactics they use, he said, are, are dated and they're going to not serve us well. So it, they didn't you mention that he, he foresaw an island hopping campaign? Yes. In the Pacific? He presaged the island hopping campaign. So now fast forward nine years and we're dealing with Guadalcanal and on our way up the island chain to make it through Okinawa. And then, uh, you know, eventually we didn't have to attack the mainland, but we were ready to do so. So all of that you could say uh, with a straight face, had its basis in this original article written in the 1931 issue of, in a 1931 issue of proceedings. So, you know, again, look for the Marine Corps issue coming up next month. A rich tradition at proceedings and the Naval Institute of Marine Corps relevant content and Marine Corps tackling Marine Corps issues to the betterment of the service. And this issue uh, certainly will be no different in that respect. All right, Bill. Well, time flies when you're solving all the world's problems, as usual. Um, it does. It does. So join us here next week again. Um, we hope to be on Wednesday today. We apologize. Uh, we, we were uh, up on Tuesday. Um, but uh, look forward to uh, seeing you guys here at the Proceedings Podcast. Uh, like us on Facebook. Uh, follow us on Twitter and uh, share us with a friend. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. Hooray.